Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. What next for the Tories after two bruising by-elections this week? I'm Lucy Fisher, and this is Political Fix from the Financial Times. Coming up, elections guru and top political pollster Professor Sir John Curtis is dropping in to crunch the numbers on this week's two by-elections. And we'll look at why Foreign Secretary David Cameron has annoyed some right-wing US Congress members this week. And in the studio with me are my FT colleagues George Parker. Hello, George. Hi there, Lucy. And the FT's Rafe Thudden. Hi, Rafe. Hi, Lucy. George, Rafe, what a week. Keir Starmer has suffered one of the toughest periods of his leadership, only to end this week with a stunning double by-election win. The headline figures certainly look impressive, particularly in Wellingborough, where a colossal 28.5% swing to Labour was recorded, the second biggest Tory to Labour swing in a by-election since the Second World War. Um, Rafe, George, I want to get your take shortly. But first, joining us to dig a little deeper into the numbers is Professor Sir John Curtis. Hi, John. Good day to you. Just give us your first take. I mean, is this an unqualified success for Labour or should we be caveating it? I think we should be caveating it, though in so doing, be aware that we are now expecting quite a lot from Labour, given how far it is ahead in the opinion polls. So what are the caveats? Caveat number one is that in Kingswood, at least, the parties share of the vote, the lead over the Conservatives at around 10 points, was less than that was achieved by Sir Tony Blair in 1997, 2001 and 2005 in the constituency. Although in fairness, in Wellingborough, the the performance pretty much matched what was achieved in 1997 and 2001. But the second caveat is that you've quoted those two swings, but you need to appreciate that basically two-thirds of the contribution to that swing figure comes from the decline in the Conservative vote, and only one-third comes from the rise in Labour support. Um, And basically, in both constituencies, um, the rise in Labour support, substantial though it was, and particularly in Wellingborough, 19 points, it's one of Labour's best by-election performances. It's still only a half of the fall in the Conservative vote. And this, together with the fact that Reform UK seemed to be picking up much of the other half, is at least consistent with the evidence of the opinion polls in recent weeks. Mm -hmm. Now, for every one person who's going from Conservative to Labour, there is also one going from Conservative to Reform. So, so Keir Starmer's saying, you know, people want change. That seems to be clear. People still want change. But he then wants to go on to say, and the change they want is Labour. Well, Some of them, yes, from his point of view, enough of them to win a general election, yes, but all of them, certainly not, because it's now pretty clear that it is reform who are competing with the Conservatives, at least for votes, if not necessarily for seats. And that is a new development. These are the first by-elections 
in which reform have really significantly registered. And it does come in the wake of their rise in supporting the opinion polls. And we'll dig a bit more into reform. Just to pause a second on on Labour, George, Um, as John says, it feels in some ways it's more a disfavourable view of the Tories at play here than Keir Starmer and his party and policies necessarily inspiring waves of support. What's your take on, on the results today? Well, I think John's absolutely spot on about that. You, know, you, you could argue that this doesn't show a massive you know, optimism and enthusiasm about the prospects for a Labour government. However, you know, look at the raw figures, the fact this was the second biggest swing to Labour, I think, since the Second World War in a by-election. There is a question about how people will feel on election day, in the general election. Does it matter that they're unenthused by the Labour Party? They may well stay at home. Um, and decide that the plague on all your houses. But whatever happens, that's probably good news and probably enough to get Keir Starmer over the line. One question I'd be interested to hear John's view is is, is whether Rishi Sunak will be more concerned about the uh, switch of voters to the Labour Party or more concerned about the switch of voters to reform in these by-elections. I think his problem is he has reason to be concerned about both because hmm. um, both are doing him damage and both are helping to ensure that the Conservative Party has still not made any discernible progress in advancing their position in the opinion polls. But I think we should also come back to this point about enthusiasm and about turnout. Uh, I mean, the Conservative Party, you know, surprise, surprise, are saying, oh, low turnout, you know, our voters stayed at home. It's all right. It'll be all right when come the general election. The honest truth is you've got to ask yourself, why were our voters staying at home uh, even if they were staying at home more than Labour. But there is a broader point here, which I think all of our politicians need to think about. On average now, there has been a 28-point fall in turnout between the 2019 general election and each of the by-elections in this parliament. That is now higher than in any previous post-war parliament. It's even slightly higher than the fall in the parliament of 1997 to 2001, at the end of which only 59% of people voted in the general election, but still an all-time low. And I think they, all of the parties have to ask themselves, well, why is it that we've got this deeply discontented electorate? It's clear that they're unhappy about the government, but it's also arguably a deeply pessimistic electorate. They're not quite sure who's going to solve the economy, who's going to solve the, the health service. And it's whether or not Labour can solve that, that perhaps is the deal that Labour have not really sealed is that against that backdrop, it's not entirely clear that a lot of voters are just simply going to decide to stay at home in the general election. Of course, so far as our broader health of our democracy is concerned, that's something for all politicians to worry about. I was struck that it was obviously a low turnout in both these by-elections, fewer than 40% of electors headed to the polls. Um, uh, Rafe, uh, you, like me, have been uh, in Wellingborough uh, in the past week. Uh, you've been on the campaign trail more generally following reform around the country. What's your take on their appeal? What, what have you made of voters you've been speaking to who tell you that they're backing the party? I mean, it's an, always an interesting conversation with with reform voters. A lot of them do sort of buy into the ideas that reform puts forward. And it's often a view of anti-immigration policies and and increasingly anti-net zero policies. And that does cut through to them. Uh, when I was out in Wellingborough over the weekend talking to voters, um, increasingly in the sort of town centre, they would raise these issues with us in conversation. But on the flip side, that the Conservatives weren't offering them enough when it came to these policies. And that shortcoming was a big part driving them away from the party. 
Did it feel to you that reform voters were coming more from the Conservatives or were you speaking to people who had previously voted Labour but had decided to switch? All the people I spoke to who were thinking of voting reform had previously voted Conservative. I mean, it's hard when you're gauging it off Vox Pops. We know that not all of reform's votes come from the Conservatives. Some of it comes from people who don't know or or sort of didn't know who they were voting for beforehand. And then the rest comes from sort of third parties. But the bulk of it does come from Conservative voters, and that's a problem for the Prime Minister. John, uh, reform obviously got 13% in Wellingborough, 10% in Kingswood. It far outstripped their previous record of uh, 5.4% in the Tamworth by-election. But really, I mean, some observers were saying that was the bare minimum they needed to do to get into kind of low double figures, prove that how they're polling nationally, which is about 10%, was borne out and not a mirage. Um, have we re- seen reform reach a height? Um, do you think they should have done better, particularly in Wellingborough, where UKIP got almost 20% in 2015? Well, first of all, uh, a note about the 2015 uh, Wellingborough contest. That was another contest in which the Labour Party disavowed its candidate. Um, and it's very clear that the, the Labour vote in particular suffered then. So that probably helps why, to explain why UKIP did as well as they uh, as they did. To be honest, um, what I was saying at the beginning of the night, and therefore I should be honest about this, is that I thought that to suggest that the polls were roughly in the right place, reform needed to get about 10% of the vote in in Kingswood and about 12 or 13% in Wellingborough, and that in the end is what they ended up doing. The point about reform, it's not that they're going to take seats off the Conservatives, unlike Labour. It's that in taking votes off the Conservatives, and particularly Bearing in mind that uh, Reform's predecessor, the Brexit Party, did not contest Conservatives held seats in 2019. So therefore, anything that Reform get, it isn't just adding to what Brexit had last time. It is completely from base zero. So they're therefore particularly likely to take votes from the Conservatives above all in places that the Conservatives are trying to defend. Um, and it's that threat that means that, that uh, in the end... The ability of Conservative MPs to fend off Labour's challenge for their seat is indeed at risk of being made more difficult by the fact that reform do now seem to be picking up votes, some of which at least uh, Labour probably could never reach. And George, I mean, we're recording this podcast uh, on Friday morning. Um, So far, we've seen only Andrea Jenkins, the long-standing, staunch Sunak Sunak critic, come out uh, of the woodwork to criticise him again and repeat her call for a change of leader. What's your sense of how bad this is for Sunak and whether the Tory party will cleave together behind him now, thinking it's too too late to do anything else, or whether we might see an outbreak of uh, discontent again over the weekend? Well, as you say, Lucy, so far, the plotters haven't broken cover. Uh, this is, as you say, being recorded on Friday morning, and we hear they're having meetings, plots about plots, I think is mm. probably the best way to describe it. But I think we can expect over the coming days, people on the right of the party to say that these results and the relative success of the Reform Party shows that the Conservative Party needs to tack right, take a tough line on issues like migration, um, and possibility of talk about um, replacing Rishi Sunak with a more right-wing leader before the election, which I think will come to, to naught, but will certainly be destabilising for the Conservative Party in quite a febrile moment. But I think the fact that that discussion is even taking place is a sign of how dangerous the situation is for Rishi Sunak, because 
look at these results, the fact that the Conservative Party hemorrhaging support to Labour, the hemorrhaging support on the right to the Reform Party. And if you move off to the right to try and fend off reform, what about the blue wall and the battles you're fighting against the Liberal Democrats and some of the wealthiest seats in the country? I mean, he's in a really, really tough political bind. I think, And I think those results last night just illustrate, illustrate what a bind he's in. But there is another question that MPs on the right of the party need to ask themselves is, why is it that reform have advanced in particular at a time when the government did decide to become tougher on immigration? Have they, in fact, in focusing on that issue, an issue where indeed many Conservative voters are unhappy, they've actually helped to highlight the failure and therefore helped to fuel the discontent that the uh, reform from which the Reform Party is now profiting. Certainly research I've done until last December suggested that while many a Conservative voter was unhappy about immigration, it wasn't an issue that was related to whether or not they were going to vote Conservative again. It was a bite-your-lip issue, it seemed. You were unhappy about it, but unless you were unhappy about something else, you weren't going to defect from the Conservatives. That seemed perhaps to be no longer the case in December. So you have to be careful as to whether or not chasing the reform tail necessarily means that you succeed in bringing reform down. Rafe, the by-election results at the end of the week have just been the cherry on the cake for Rishi Sunak, haven't they, really? We've had the inflation figures uh, out on Wednesday showing that inflation hasn't continued to fall. The GDP figures on Thursday showed that the UK uh, did enter recession at the end of last year. It's not looking good for Sunak in terms of competence in him meeting some of his five pledges. Of course, two of those were keep inflation falling and grow the economy. I think attention is now turning to the tight public finances ahead of the March 6th budget. George had his big scoop uh, about the the headroom there. And we've had some more briefing from Treasury uh, insiders uh, trying to hose down hopes of a huge pre-election giveaway. Um, How difficult is it going to be for Rishi Sunak to try and move the dial with an exciting budget uh, and fiscal offer to the public? I mean, it's an interesting week, right? Because over the weekend, we had this sort of issue emerge in Rochdale for the Labour Party, which the Conservatives thought, great, the Labour Party are fighting between themselves again. They've got a problem of anti-Semitism and we can carry that into the week. And then the momentum faded really quickly. The sort of technical recession news in the middle of the week and then the by-election losses, they just cement this view that the party just isn't fighting fit. And so the idea, which which George reported on, of effectively cutting public spending to fund tax cuts, again sort of raises the point that Professor Curtis has raised about priorities and about the idea that, well, if you cut public services, which are a key issue for voters, to fund tax cuts, does that actually cut through to voters? Probably not. So what do you do to get positive headlines that cut through to voters? Well, I think it's incredibly hard for Sinek to actually figure that out. And John, you know, you've pointed out the interesting point that, yes, the Conservatives are languishing in the polls at the moment, but will Labour find themselves in as much trouble as a current government after 18 months if the inheritance they get on the economy is so difficult? Well, I think that, in a sense, is a $64,000 question. And bringing <laughs> us back to the beginning of this podcast, when I was saying, you know, we're, we're, we're holding Labour now to a high bar, in a sense... I think we're now already beginning to ask ourselves not just what does Labour need to do to win the election, because that project seems to be going pretty well and the by-elections confirm that, but rather 
what does Labour need to do to position itself in such a way that it might be able to maintain its popularity and avoid the same fate of the Conservatives, given the very difficult legacy it will have of a tight fiscal position, uh, a flatlining economy, and failing public services. You know, a mixture that might mean you're going to have to increase yet more in terms of taxation and certainly to take unpopular measures. And I think the, the problem about the fact that it looks as though it isn't just these by-election results, it's a lot of evidence about Sakir Starmer's relative lack of popularity, the fact that people are less likely to think that Labour is ready for government now than was the case before 1997, uh, that the fact that their lead on the economy, yes, it's there, but it's not that big, that all of these things about the apparent lack of enthusiasm for the Labour alternative means that if indeed what Labour are going to achieve later this year is winning an election on the back of discontent with the Conservatives, that might prove to be a rather poor foundation for maintaining the popularity of a government in difficult times thereafter. And I guess there perhaps is a risk now for the Labour Party of perhaps being too myopic, of being so concerned and so nervous about what it does between now and October stroke November that it forgets that it might face a much bigger and much more difficult task beyond next October and November if indeed Sakir Starmer achieves his objective of getting the keys to 10 Downing Street. And George, just a word on Starmer. I mean, he's obviously had this great end to the week, but there are deeper problems with his operation that have been exposed by this row over alleged anti-Semitism, haven't there? And again, after him dropping the £28 pledge last week and being accused of prevaricating and U-turning, again, this week he was accused of indecision in, in his handling of the row over the candidate Ajah Ali, first defending him and then dropping him. Yeah, I think it's been a, a poor seven days for um, Keir Starmer up until the point when the recession hit and we had uh, these by-election catastrophes for the Conservative Party. And as you say, Lucy, it did, it did expose flaws and, and actually divisions in his operation at the heart of Labour. £28 billion saga was appallingly handled. It was shambolic. It dragged on for months longer than it should have done, frankly. And everyone could see this U-turn coming uh, from space. And yet, even though that it was evident everybody was writing about it, Sue Gray, his chief of staff, launched a leak inquiry into how this emerged. I mean, it was emerging everywhere. And the fact she did it then provoked um, complaints from people who had their phones checked and you know, sort of some people complained they didn't have union representation. But the fact that that made it into the public domain suggested that things weren't entirely happy in the Labour operation. Sue Gray we're told, you know, the, of course, famously, the person who investigated Partygate in, in the cabinet office was one of those people who thought they should have held on to the 28 billion pledge. Um, and then the way he handled the whole Rochdale candidacy question as well was was all equally shambolic and suggested double standards as well. The fact that he appeared to be willing to be less ruthless with someone on his side of the party, namely the, the right of the party, than with people on the left. So I think it did expose some weaknesses, but the meta picture at the end of the week, if you look at the way that real people have cast their votes in real elections and the momentum that Keir Starmer has, I think he'll probably sort of take it as a win. Yeah. John, is that your take as well? I mean, you mentioned that Keir Starmer is not necessarily being seen as particularly popular among the public. Is he a potential weak link as we get closer to the general election? A nastily, deeply personal attacks against him will only ramp up? Well, in a sense, it's Labour's good fortune 
that uh, their standing in the polls doesn't really seem to rest on Sakir Starmer's popularity. If Sakir Starmer had hitherto been regarded as a popular leader, and all of a sudden the events of the last fortnight had persuaded people that maybe he wasn't quite so effective after all, uh, then maybe there'd be something for them to worry about. It's, but because it, his personal standing and popularity isn't really one of the f- central foundations that on, upon which Labour rests, in a sense, therefore, they're, they're somewhat insulated from it. Of course, it does bring us back to the point, what are the principal foundations of Labour standing in the polls? Well, frankly, it is the mistakes that have been made by the Conservative Party. And probably Boris Johnson and Liz Truss have done far more to ensure that Labour win the next election, uh, or at least have done at least as much as, as, as Sakir Starmer himself has done. But I think, again, it comes back to this point I was making just now, that what we saw in, about the 28 billion quid and about the handing of Rochdale, we were kind of going hang on, is this the kind of thing that's going to happen when they're in government? I mean, if trying to handle an opposition is difficult, being in government with all the slings and arrows of misfortune is a lot more, is a lot more difficult. And if the party is going to uh, decide to change its policy because it's constantly attacked by, by the opposition, um, if it's uh, not going to be able to sort out its candidate selection quickly and make, uh, make uh, relatively speedy decisions, it's going to have to make a lot more speedy decisions when it doesn't necessarily always know the full facts um, when when in office. So that that's, well, again, a little warning sign. You need to think about how you're going to handle things in government. Professor Sir John Curtis, thanks for joining. You're welcome. David Cameron needs to worry about his own country, and frankly, he can kiss my ass. The reaction there from right-wing Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene to David Cameron's intervention in US politics this week. Cameron wrote a piece for US political website The Hill, urging Congress to back a new military support package for Ukraine. Clearly, Marjorie Taylor Greene was not best pleased. But is her view representative of Capitol Hill? It's a question I put to the FT's foreign editor, Alec Russell, who's just returned from D.C., now, Alec, you're responsible for overseeing the FT's scores of foreign correspondents uh, across over more than 40 bureaus around the world and our coverage of global themes. So we're very lucky to catch you in London for once. I know you're often gallivanting across the world. You were in Washington last week, and I want to ask you a bit about what you picked up on the Hill. But just tell us first off, this altercation between David Cameron uh, and Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, what happened here? Well, that was quite something, as in to see a British politician wading into American politics, as as Cameron did. He basically called on uh, Republican congressmen to back Ukraine and said otherwise it would be totally shameful and it it would be effectively appeasing a dictator. And American politicians don't like being lectured by outsiders, and they're rather surprised to be lectured by a Brit because they tend to think of the Brits, as they see us, as being more on side than other European nations. And it got quite a heated response from Congress. Well, it did. And I want to come on in a second to where you think things are going regarding American support for Ukraine in the medium term. But of course, on Political Fix, we focus on UK politics. Just give us your sense at this stage, how you think Cameron is getting on in his role at the helm of the Foreign Office. Well, I have two perspectives on that. One of them is from inside the Foreign Office, and that does matter they are broadly all overjoyed. They feel they've got someone who has a strategic view, is interested in 
thinking about the shape of the world and where it's going. So that's number one. More important, obviously, in terms of uh, how he's doing is how he's doing on the world stage. And the truth is that if you've been a prime minister, you still have more luster and more pulling power. So we can get to see world leaders in a way that most foreign secretaries can't. So he can pull more strings. So he's being, I guess, more effective. Be interesting to see how he does this weekend for the security conference. Um, So let's focus on what you picked up in Washington. Um, Tell us about the situation with support for Ukraine. Well, I found it really, really startling and depressing. Fundamentally, there is a strong belief in the Republican Party that Donald Trump is right when he says that it's time to move on from Ukraine or when he implies that it's time to move on from Ukraine. And and the argument that they make is as follows. It is no, 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 we don't We don't want to help Putin, but we feel that he can no longer win control of the whole of Ukraine, so we can move on from Ukraine now. There should be a deal. Ukraine is never going to win back the territory that's under occupation by Russia, uh, so a settlement must be reached so we can focus on China. Most Republicans in Congress are against funding for Ukraine, and Whoever you speak to practically in Congress, in the Republican Party, uh, articulates this view because Donald Trump articulates this view and he's running the party. And of course, Donald Trump has been bad-mouthing NATO members who he says aren't stumping up enough cash for the organisation and even making the somewhat insane suggestion that Russia should attack those NATO members that aren't supporting the 2% GDP minimum spending on defence. What's your sense in speaking to policymakers and politicians in the US? Is NATO doomed under a Trump presidency? Well, I I don't think it is doomed. I think that Trump is playing, obviously, a provocative and, and arguably deeply reckless game in suggesting that the whole policy of collective defense is open to debate. He does remember have a point, uh, that is that most European members of NATO have not been meeting the 2% target of GDP defence spending. And that irritates and has irritated for a long time a lot of Americans. So he's beating that drum. Whether he'd actually like to withdraw totally from NATO, I suspect probably not. But there are plenty of people who are members of the party and who are thinking about a possible Trump second term, who say they would be quite happy to pull back from NATO. And how might Trump 2.0 differ from the first time around if he does get back in? Well, I think one thing that, that everyone has to appreciate is that there are people around Trump or who want to be around Trump, conservative opinion makers, conservative columnists, conservative thinkers who are planning for a second term. They're thinking hard about it in a way that not many people actually thought he was going to get elected in in 2016. It was a surprise and uh, they didn't have a plan. There is a plan now. Uh, There is a domestic plan, uh, which is very, very radical. It's for cutting back a lot of the government agencies uh, and for massively increasing the number of political appointees in the equivalent of the, the civil service. And there's a foreign policy plan as well, which looks The politest way of describing it is ultra, ultra unilateralist. Some people might describe it as isolationist. 
And what about um, the special relationship if Trump gets elected? And indeed, if Labour come into government in the UK, there could be several different moving parts of the jigsaw, couldn't there? Well, that will be one of the really interesting things to observe. If it is the case that Keir Starmer is elected later this year, as is quite possible, and if Trump is elected around the same time, what on earth would that mean? They are really not uh, natural political bedfellows. I think that Donald Trump will try and peel off countries in Europe to have separate relationships with them. And Britain would be an obvious one uh, for him to alight on. Of course, Labour is also going to be thinking and is thinking this has to be a moment that we move closer to Europe again on defence and we need to be having more discussions with France, given that France and Britain have the two largest armed forces in Europe. Um, but the UK also needs to work very closely with the EU in a sort of European defence mission. And do you think there's the political manoeuvre room for whoever is in government in the UK to argue for that? I mean, Lots of kind of alarm uh, warning bells were sort of uh, flagged by Brexiters about this idea of a European army. That's a sort of spectre that still hangs over any talk of closer cooperation on defence. No, you're right. There's, I mean, it's always been that uh, for Brexiters and for pre-Brexit Brexiters, the whole idea of a European army has always been deemed a bit of a bit of a nightmare. So the new government will obviously have to tread very, very carefully if it is the case that Donald Trump is elected and it is the case that he pushes aggressively to uh, withdraw from NATO. Um, I think that Britain has always found a way of working with America and I suspect that whoever is in number 10 Downing Street, uh, if there is uh, a second Trump term, that person will find a way of having a workable relationship with America, because that's our special place in Europe, isn't it? To have a good relationship with America and a, ideally a good relationship with the rest of Europe. But all that said, if we end up with the most unilateralist stroke isolationist president possibly ever, or certainly in the last hundred years or so, then Britain is going to have to think very carefully about that whole special relationship, which, of course, only dates back to the end of the Second World War. Alec Russell, thanks for joining. Thank you very much. So we've just got time left for uh, political fix stock picks. George, who are you buying or selling this week? Well, I think I'm going to be buying Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, who I think has had a pretty good week all round. Uh, first of all, she successfully killed off that £28 billion a year spending commitment that she initially made herself, of course, back in 2021, but then realised it was totally unaffordable and finally uh, removed it from Labour's manifesto followed up by the fact that we entered a recession on Thursday, the R word now hanging around Rishi Sunak, which she was quick to exploit. And the other thing I've mentioned is the fact that uh, our colleague Jim Pickard and I have written a piece for the FT magazine this weekend about Labour's success in wooing big donors to support the party's election effort. In particular, we focus on three so-called mega donors who are giving £5 billion each that's uh, Dale Vince, Gary Lubner and David Sainsbury. And Rachel Reeves was instrumental, really, in wooing all of those people as part of a general business outreach. But in particular, when you speak to those donors, they're often, they often say they've been impressed by Rachel Reeves. Interesting. And I must say, I love the magazine piece, particularly uh, the fabulous intro involving Dale Vince, uh, Hippie Convoy and an LSD trip. So uh, I'll put the link in the show notes for sure. Rafe, how about you? I'll be buying Wes Streising, who's the Shadow Health Secretary. Um, 
really off the back of George's great mag piece, someone who's been wheeled out by Keir Starmer effectively as a sort of confident deputy on TV news uh, to rebut any concerns about the party, and an individual who, when it comes to the NHS, is probably going to be in a strong position to show leadership there, having battled cancer and dealt with the health service himself recently, and going into next week where we've got a ceasefire vote being brought by the SNP. Streeting's constituency, Vilford North, is a, is a fairly mixed constituency. It has a strong Jewish demographic and a strong Muslim demographic. And he's shown often in the past that he's able to, to straddle that line quite effectively. And when it comes to, to actually balancing that next week, I think he'll be in a strong position to do so. Okay, Lucy, how about you this week? Well, I'm buying a stake in GB News, the right-wing broadcaster, because I was just really struck uh, on my uh, travels to Wellingborough how many people I spoke to, particularly to a man and a woman, all those who said that they were interested in reform. Um, And when I asked them about how they knew about the party, they said they were regular GB News viewers and that they'd seen Ben Habib, um, the deputy uh, leader of the party and the candidate in Wellingborough, and Richard Tice, the party leader, on the airwaves, uh, on the channel. And I just thought it was fascinating. It's clearly getting a lot more purchase in some parts of the country than at least I had realised. Rafe and George, thanks for joining. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Lucy. And my thanks to Sir John Curtis for his great insights into where the Tories go from here. And that's it for this episode of the FT's Political Fix. I've put links to subjects discussed in this episode in the show notes. Do check them out. They're articles we've made free for Political Fix listeners. There's also a link there to Stephen Bush's award-winning Inside Politics newsletter. You'll get 30 days free. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. Plus, do leave a review or a star rating if you have time. It really does help us spread the word. Political Fix was presented by me, Lucy Fisher, and produced by Audrey Tinlin. Manuela Saragosa is the executive producer. Original music and sound engineering by Breen Turner. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. We'll meet again here next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.